Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal. I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing tonight? Well, I was feeling a little bit. <laughs> Every time I look at outside at that gray sky and then I look at the forecast, we have minus 20 coming up on Thursday, oh, Bruce. Man. I'm so sick. This is the, I think this is, it's the, I think it's the 10,000th day of March today. This is the 10,000th day that we've suffered through this horrible, the most horrible month. And, uh, and it's not made, been made any better by the weather. But, but Bruce, I went out for a walk. Uh, I like to go f- through the U of A experimental farm. Right. And I, it just improved my experience about immensely. Mm-hmm. It was just nice to get it. You got to dress for it. And I listened, I was listening to an, an audio book and I was it just I just had a great walk so now I feel a lot better yeah I went for a walk myself today through uh, along the St. Albert River Valley and cold and gray but you dress for it and you move along and you stay warm and I listened to old cult of hockey podcasts about Ken Holland because <laughs> I was researching a post that I'm writing on Ken Holland and I thought what did we say about him back at, at the time and how wrong were we then and well, how did we cover that over? But we actually did, I think, pretty good. They, I think they held up really well, those podcasts. Well, so, we always, we tend yeah. to be optimistic, right? And oh, it did yeah, work we, out. <laughs> this time, <laughs> optimism actually uh, seemed to uh, uh, seemed to be warranted. And, and uh, uh, we, uh, we discussed a couple of the moves that I think we're going to discuss on this podcast so we can get, get, get back into that and... Uh, um, Anyway, it improved my mood, even though it's, what is today, January 89th? That's what my calendar says. <laughs> it's it's February 11,000th. It's just, anyway. You know, Bruce, it's, um, we, on those years, because we, we are pretty much glass half full kind of order fans, and on those on those years, when the orders do well, we, we appear to be clairvoyant. So mm-hmm. one out of, <laughs> one out of 10 years, we look like hey. a, Hockey sages, you know, we predicted this team was going to be good, and they're good. Toot, toot. <laughs> All right. Today, we're going to, you're starting your season in a re- review series, and you're starting with a look at Ken Holland's work. And, um, well, you started it on, uh, on excuse me, on Friday night with uh, the first post on the Oilers uh, as a team as a whole. So now you're looking at Ken Holland. And today, we're going to do a two good things. Two bad things and two numbers on Ken Holland. And because it was such a good winning season, we're going to do two good things each. Bruce, what's your first good thing about Ken Holland? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, I wasn't planning <clears throat> on it coming out quite like this. But, yeah, my, my favorite uh, of the moves that Ken Holland made, and we, we kind of had to thumb wrestle for one of them and you won, so that'll come up right away. Uh, <laughs> but I'm going to go with a kind of a gutsy move that Holland made on June 30th when he chose to buy out defenseman Andre Sekera. And that was not a popular move among Oilers fans. I looked at the Twitter reacts post that you wrote on that day and uh, and Holland was getting excoriated pretty good from a number of, uh, of people for that move, for for buying out the Oilers' uh, top defenseman by, you know, by certainly by the payroll. And yet the move did what it was supposed to do. Uh, it broke a huge logjam on the Edmonton defense that had the same 
potentially starting six defensemen for 2019-20 that had played in the playoffs in 2016-17, which was great, uh, but then was intact for two more seasons when the team was poor and poor defensively. And yet still all those guys were under contract and there was there didn't seem to be any space for the younger guys that have been bubbling under for a couple of years. And by doing this move, uh, I mean, it's, it sucked for Andre Sector fans, and I'm one of them. But in doing the move, Holland did create some cap space. He, he, and this is what happens when you bring in an outsider as a, uh, to run the team. He can take sort of a clear-eyed look at things and say, and you know, without sort of any personal ownership in this deal or that deal, is how do I, how do I, um, how do I deal with this situation? We're practically capped out. I got to sign a few guys. Uh, how can we do it? And by buying out Secra and getting three million dollars in cap space, uh, he then had to replace Secra on the blue line from within his organization. Uh, which at the time we thought maybe Caleb Jones had uh, had the inside track on. Uh, it turned out that Ethan Bear won the job uh, right from the beginning of the season. And uh, either way, you're talking about a $720,000 contract. So with the move, it freed up uh, about $2.3 million that wasn't there before. Uh, even after having replaced Sekera with Bear, uh, which I would argue in retrospect was an upgrade on the defense this year. Uh, then he had a little bit of money to go out and sign a few of these million-dollar caliber class players that uh, he subsequently signed. And some would, some would pick and choose and say, well, he wasted all that money on Mike Smith, or he spent it all on Alex Chason, who, who did get a nice raise from the previous year, but it wasn't $3 million worth of raise. Uh, and uh, it just gave some flexibility, but more importantly, really to me, is the fact that it gave those young defenders a shot. And first of all, Bear got in, and then, of course, Larson got hurt, and then there was a little more room, and they tried Joel Pearson for a while, and then eventually, about mid-November, Caleb Jones got in pretty much to stay, and William Lagason got his games in, and before you knew it, the Oilers had like four different guys classified as rookies, who were getting nice time on the blue, uh, including one who became a, a, a go-to top four everyday defender in uh, in Easton Bear. So I think it was a move that was made with the long view, and Ethan Bear covered the bet quicker than anybody could have guessed it would be covered, uh, but it worked out very much for the better. Are you on mute? There we go. I'm saying if the Oilers, if the if the Oilers could have traded um, uh, Chris Russell, they would have done so, but they couldn't. Uh, I don't think he. I think he has he has no no movement clause or no trade clause. He had a no trade clause. I think he'd go to ten, fifteen teams, ten teams this past summer, and. um, you know, I remember the narrative being put forward was that Sekera might, might have lost a step. And I I honestly didn't Thanks. really, I didn't believe that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he had lost a step, but he had lost a step and couldn't keep up. He wasn't right. capable of playing in the NHL. I never, I didn't buy that, Bruce. I was actually 
early on before they traded Secker, I was not in favor of it. Mm-hmm. I liked his game. And I think it was proven out. I think he was a strong player on a really strong Dallas team. I think he played top four in the top four in Dallas. He started in the top four, and then he gradually worked his way down to the third pairing. Uh, And they had uh, uh, one of the young fellas surpassed him. Uh, And he was fifth on the team in in ice time, even strength ice time. And he only had eight points in 50-some games. you know, he was solid, but, he, you know, the fact was he was no longer a $5.5 million defenseman. He was a oh, sure role-playing defenseman, and that's how, Dal- you know, and that's how basically Dallas paid him, uh, was $1.5 million for one year with bonuses, which he's earned about 200000 Yeah. But uh, Edmonton, even if they kept half of his cap hit, whoever took him would have got 2.75 times two years to go, and there just was no market for him. So yeah. The yeah. buyout they, they, was just the, you know, you had to take your medicine and move on. Oh, I agree. I agree with all. Like, by the time of the trade, and when the trade happened, I got my head around it. I, I believe, you know, you've listened to the old podcast. Maybe I'm making this yep. up, but I do believe I had got my head around it. And the advantage that I saw was the, what, the point that you've made. It was readily apparent that the Oilers had some young defensemen who were ready to yep. bust in Caleb Jones. And they had, you've got as, as uh, Scotty Bowman said again and again in his book, uh, Scotty, the Ken Dryden book, great mm-hmm. audio book. If you're looking for something to listen to, to kill about 20 hours in the next <laughs> few weeks, mm-hmm. uh, you've, a team has to change. A team has to change. And uh, the Oilers needed to change. And they had this young guy in Caleb yep. Jones. And I thought he was going to be the guy. It turned out, well, it turns out he was one of the guys. They right. brought in both him and Ethan Bear. And by the end of the year, I thought Caleb Jones was playing really well. He he was, I thought he was really uh, doing well. And, and Ethan Bear was phenomenal he was all year long. Chris, he was eating Chris Russell's lunch by the end of the of the of time. There. <laughs> I think it would have been a mistake, Bruce, in the playoffs mm-hmm. to, to not play Jones. Mm-hmm. If you had to sit, if you're picking between um, Russell and it could still, we could still have playoffs. If you're picking between Russell, Benning, and Caleb Jones, you got to play uh, Jones. He's better than either of those guys. And Bruce, and of course, Bear was just sensational. And I just want to refer to our stats um, project mm-hmm. on Ethan Bear for a second. So I did a post myself recently where we looked right. at. So when we break down scoring chances, we we break it down into like what was the activity that the player did? Like was it a shot, a pass? And we differentiate in the shots. We include stretch passes. And a stretch pass leading to a great a chance is that that pass, which creates an odd man rush, essentially, right. where uh, defenseman busts it out and suddenly you got a two-on-one or a three-on-two or a, or a four-on-three because mm-hmm. of that pass. And the, uh, the Edmonton owner who made the most of those kinds of passes at even strength last year Ethan Bear with 21 of them. No and doubt. Next best, Darnell Nurse, nine. Or excuse me, Oscar Clefbaum with 11 of them and Darnell Nurse with nine. So Bear essentially almost, he played more minutes than Clefbaum, but almost had twice as many than, than the next best guy. I mean, Ethan Bear was phenomenal at passing the puck all year long. I mean, I thought, I was hoping, uh, and I mentioned this before, like, you know, what the Oilers needed was that Duncan Keith, that guy who comes out of nowhere and is a top drawer defenseman. And Bruce, we have a couple of candidates right now in Ethan Bear and Caleb Jones who have just played their first rookie years who are going to still get better. They can get better. 
to play, you know, they're to be as good as Duncan Keith is a stretch, but those guys were damn good and they're going to get better. And uh, yeah, making room the, for them was essential. One of the things Holland said at his opening day presser, uh, and you said on the podcast we did later that day with approval and with my seconding of the motion, uh, Holland saying how much he liked, how he valued speed and puck movement on defense. He says, we got to have guys who can move the puck on the blue line. And that's where Bear and Jones, that's uh, that's the strength of their game. And even the other guy he brought in, Mike Green, that's the strength of his game. And, yep. you know, that's that's what uh, um, that's what Holland values. And, and uh, if you look at the Oilers team this year, I think that was a significant difference of, of this year's team over the last was their ability to get the hell out of their own end and control the puck more often. And Ethan Bear was a, was a beauty. One thing one thing about our our stretch passes that I noticed that uh, uh, like the traditional stretch pass, you think it's a long pass from inside the defensive zone to over the red line. That's usually what the commentators call it. But I thought our definition kind of morphed a little bit into a clean pass that breaks the play. Yeah. Open. Yeah. And sometimes that pass wouldn't necessarily be that long, but it would be. The, the one that, that that moved the play to the next level from the defense to the forwards with the other team backpedaling, you know, and, and uh, uh, if one of those forwards was named McDavid or Dreisaitl, so much the better. And getting those guys, the puck, in, you know, in full control while they're speeding through the neutral zone, that's golden. That's something the Oilers had to have, had to have it. And, and it, was a, it was a big upgrade. And... Uh, I mean, actually, that was the part of Sekra's game that wasn't bad, you know. Uh, but uh, I think uh, uh, bringing, replacing him with a younger, improving young player is going to pay off in spades in the long run. And, and it paid off pretty well in the, in the immediate short run. And uh, Caleb Jones led the team on a per-minute base in, in terms of getting outside shots on net, leading to grade-A chances. So <clears throat> he had that ability to kind of walk the line or make a little move and get that shot on net that was either going to be tipped or, or be rebounded for and a chance. Screened. Yeah. Or screened. So Caleb Jones, he, he offered a lot as well. So I, I think they're both, man, you need, I think at least four puck moving D uh, in the NHL right now on your roster. And um, so, you know, bear cleft bomb nurse and Jones, I think have to play yep. in the playoffs. Yep. So Our, what's your what's your uh, first good move? This is the one we uh, Ken Holland. This is the one that actually <laughs> people people have been kind of iffy on Ken Holland, Bruce. Also, you know, there had been kind of of a certain amount of iffiness. I think it's fair to say mm-hmm. through July, it was kind of like yeah, you know, the Broberg pick. Some people, some people liked it, others didn't, and you know, people were kind of some of the other moves they weren't sure and. Um, you know, not a lot had, had happened, frankly. <clears throat> you know, there, I think the knee guard signing had happened by then, and people were thinking, oh, that's good. And they, I think maybe even it signed, he signed Haas, I think, by then. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, in mid-July, he pulled off the, the trade. That, that just, just, there was an outpouring of joy in Edmonton. <laughs> we were so tired of seeing Milan Lucic fail in Edmonton. And it wasn't just that he wasn't worth his $6 million salary in his last years in Edmonton. It was that he was he was literally one of the worst 
forwards in the NHL at that point. And I'm not going to say how he did in Calgary. I don't care. Like, I have no idea. I didn't watch him play. But um, he got, he got, he, Ken Holland in trading for James Neal got out from under that no movement clause, Bruce. He traded a player who was too slow on a team that needed to get faster. Now he brought in a player that wasn't a whole heck of a lot faster, but I think James Neal was a bit faster on the forecheck, more able to make things happen on the forecheck than, than Lucic. And according to the way that we rate players with our cult of hockey system, looking at their contributions to scoring chances for and against that even strength, James Neal was a significantly better even strength player than Milan Lucic was in his last two years in Edmonton. And it, and it was a significant difference, quite a bit better. And um, James Neal was also really strong on the power play. He also has a contract, especially if he can play a few more years, like one more year. Uh, like it, you don't have to protect him in the expansion draft. It's it's somewhat easier to buy out. So it's a lot um, more worthwhile to buy out. I mean, it's the same basic equation as the Sekra buyout. You know, you bite the bullet, you create room, you replace them with a cheaper player, and you got cap room. I'm not saying it's going to happen this summer, but I'm saying <coughs> this summer they're going to have to revisit and say, is this the time to do that, or are we going to get value out of this guy? But, they, you know, with Lucic, I mean, that last year if they bought him out, they would have got 333000 in cap space, meaning they could have replaced him with a guy at the NHL minimum, and they still would have lost money out of the equation in terms of, what it made available it was just absolutely insane how that contract was set up Bruce I just want to go through some of the comments that were made the day of the <laughs> trade just because they they still bring a smile to my face and it's funny often you know if there's a really strong reaction to a trade I've come to think often that reaction turns out to be fairly accurate you know mm -hmm. and there certainly was on this one so here's what ESPN's Greg Wyshynski who is an Oilers critic through and through. Uh, here's what he said about the trade. Unless there's something we don't know about Neil, this is a coup for Ken Holland. Mm -hmm. Then the uh, the Athletics' Dom Lecician said, both way overpaid and likely over the hill, yep. but much prefer the bet on Neil over Lucic. And Dom is a very kind of uh, smart hockey analytics guy, pretty savvy. Here's Craig Craig, TSN's Craig Button on Neil. He's had one off season. I expect him to return to 20 goal form. Nailed it. Uh, Sammy Silber of the Sporting News. This deal can actually be considered a big win for the Oilers. Uh, let's keep going here. For Oilers fans, this is from Kent Wilson, who I think used to write for The Athletic. I think he's retired now from blogging. Oh, yeah? Kent Wilson wrote, for one, for Oilers fans wondering, Neil was awful last year. Uh -huh. uh, his relative impacts were worst on the team. Worst uh -huh. even strength points per 60 rate. He dragged out anyone he played with, scratched in final playoff game. Maybe he bounces back next year, but he was the Flames' worst regular skater. And I'm not going to quibble with people who watched Neil that year in Calgary. Kent Wilson, you know, we heard this a lot. There was Dean uh, Boomer Mulberg on Calgary Radio, and he said of the trade, I was so sick of watching James Neal by the end. He was just done. <clears throat> the most bullish person on the whole trade was the cult of hockey's Kurt Levins, who said, it certainly appears that Ken Holland has acquired a legit top six winger. 
Actually, there might have been someone who was a bit more excited. Copper and Blue uh, blogger Jeff Chapman, he said, <laughs> I love this one, no lie, this is the most excited I've been since the playoff run. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I'll uh, tell you what, I felt pretty ecstatic myself, Bruce. I, I can tell you our the podcast that we did <clears throat> that day about that trade was the most popular call of hockey podcast of all time, I believe. Yeah, uh, certainly of the year. It had we had 125,000 views on YouTube, <laughs> and so kind of you know not yeah. an or, quite an order of magnitude, but you know not often we get to six digits. I'll say that for a fact, and it was just people were just all over it and just thrilled that Lucic was gone. So yeah, I'd written a headline uh, in June and my Lucic. Um, player review of the season and I, I I headlined it Ken Holland's thorniest problem what are the orders to do with Milan Lucic and a month later he was gone uh, wow I mean that was uh, of all the long term contracts that he inherited when he came to town he didn't want to touch most of them because they were good contracts but uh, that was one that had to be dealt with in some manner and he dealt with it so uh so credit we're due to Ken Holland. What is your second good move that you like? Well, I'm going to pick, just because I like this player, um, this free agent signing of Josh Archibald. Uh, and it was just, it was one of a class of bets that uh, Holland made uh, throughout the, uh, even the spring and summer when he brought in Joachim Niegaard and, and uh, Gaetan Haas from overseas and Thomas Yurcho from the AHL and Marcus Granlund and, and Josh Archibald and Riley Sheehan from the NHL and basically a million bucks each was the bet and he basically promised all those guys a chance and they all got a chance. Uh, every one of those guys got uh, double-digit games with the with the Oilers in 2019-20, a chance to prove their worth. Uh, in the case of Josh Archibald, some patience was required because he had an injury off the start, and it took him a while to, to find his niche, let's put it that way. Other than right from the start, he and uh, Cheyenne and others were excellent on the penalty kill right out of the gate for, for Edmonton this year. And that was a big turnaround for the team, as I detailed in the last article about the season and review, that the special teams made the Soilers team a successful one. Uh, and just Archibald was just one of those sort of smart bets on the, what uh, uh, Holland almost lovingly referred to as pros. Hockey guys that have been around 26, 27 years old, somewhere near their peak. They had enough experience <clears> that they knew what it took, but they weren't so long in the tooth that they couldn't win a race to the puck, you know. And he went for speed. He identified team speed as being a need. He identified competitiveness as being a need. He identified secondary scoring as being a need. And Josh Archibald checked all of those boxes. And he also check the shit out of the other team a lot and he, and for, for all that i mean he was about the the most ferocious hitter on the team like man he would go after the biggest guy on the other team i remember he took on that big jordan greenway from minnesota wild the guy that weighs about 
240 or something pounds, just a monster of a guy. And Archibald hit him so hard that he knocked him right out of the game. Clean chuck, just boom. Like he, the other guy outweighed him by something like 60 or 70 pounds. He hit Jamie Alexiak. He took a run at Jamie Alexiak, for goodness sake. So that was, uh, he was he was one of the guys that just kind of put a little extra spirit into the team, I think. And, you know, it was if you think of the guys that, that they had in those roles last year, Ty Raddy, Toby Reeder, uh, you know, you're not thinking of expert penalty killers. You're not thinking of guys who stir things up with a check or a one race to an icing, you know, uh, or a key defensive play with the other team's goalie out in the game on the line, which Archibald did several times, either by scoring into the empty net or by making a check or a, a deflecting a pass or something down the stretch. Like, he became a player that Dave Tippett relied on, and he delivered the goods. So I like that move, and, uh, you know... In the in the retrospect of what he eventually brought at the time, it just seemed like a you know another pretty good bet, and I'd say this one paid off. And he, and he extended him, so we got uh, two more years of of uh, Josh Archibald to look for forward to. The old Oilers regime, uh, Bruce, the old GMs previous to this would have <laughs> their their idea was to bring in uh, Josh Archibald or Riley Sheehan. But the 30-year-old version of those players, right. you know, like Eric Belanger at 32 or 33, Jared Smithson at 34, um, Boyd Gordon at 31 or whatever, Mark Letestu even at 20 to 30. Like, just yeah. just just after, like a role player, you don't want to sign a role player after 30, I'm saying. Uh, these guys who have been role players, it hardly ever works out, and it never worked out with most of these guys in the Oilers. They finally are figuring, <laughs> sign them when they're 26 oh. or 27. That, then keep them a couple of years, and then let them go. Yeah, Bye-bye. well, Arch, Arch is my poster boy for that whole class of guys that, uh, <clears throat> that Holland signed, and every last one of them, I think, was 26 or 27 years old. Perfect Maybe age. Shane is 28, but just, you know, right in there. They're pros. I mean, he's exactly right. You know, just sort of mid-career, l- low peak, uh, but but uh, but fairly reliable um, players that are, you know, anything in the million-dollar range. I mean, that's a lot of money, but uh, uh, it's a value contract for a player who can deliver uh, at even strength and on one of the special teams. Uh, that's that's uh, that's good value. So. And and yes, they're pros. You could say, well, and but you know they would say, well, Boyd, we're bringing in a pro like Boyd Gordon or uh, Eric Belanger. But <laughs> you want a, you want a pro, and it's the peak of his hockey career. And for a checker, that's between about the ages of twenty five and twenty eight, right? Maybe twenty nine. Mm-hmm. If you maybe will last till thirty after that. Like generally speaking, forget about it. Like well, yeah, you know, I mean, there's a few <laughs> generally. Generally speaking, was good into his 30s, but by the time he got oh, here, God, he's another example of a, he was, he's another. He was done. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just they just always I, get them when you know they're past their best before date, and this this haunted the Oilers, and they couldn't seem to find him. And, and Holland, he just he made so many of these bets, um, and some of them worked out. So good for him. I'm kind of torn on my my next one, Bruce. Like my mm-hmm. next guy. For the next best move, so (laughs) I'm just gonna I'm gonna go with Mike Smith. You know, um, when they signed him, he was definitely in the coin flip variety of like, is this gonna work out or not? 
old goalie. And, you know, I, you could probably make an argument that it didn't work out. If you look at his save percentage, it was just 90, excuse me, uh, 902, I think. Um, <clears throat> so you could, you know, I'm sure someone could look at the numbers and say, well, that's actually didn't work out that well. But Bruce, he had 19 wins and 19 losses. And in the NHL, that those are 19 real wins. That'll get mm-hmm. you in the playoffs. Being real 500 will, generally speaking, get you in the playoffs. So Mike Smith was a playoff caliber goalie. Mm-hmm. Um, signed on the cheap to back up Misko, Mikko Koskinen. Seemed to have great chemistry with Koskinen in, in, yeah. to the extent that Koskinen's puck moving improved as well. I just loved watching Mike Smith in that most of the year. He, he, uh, it was always thrilling. He was so fiery, so passionate. I didn't like him when the other team had a breakaway. He seemed to be particularly yeah, in that stopping those kinds of things. Um, but otherwise, and he, he obviously he had a terrible spell of play in December. <laughs> Excuse me, starting he in November. Had a lot of them, yeah. But um, he also had a couple of really, he had a strong spell in October. And then in the last uh, two months of the season, he was really good. So a lot to like there, Bruce. He really mm-hmm. gave the team, I think, some fire, personality, and some solid goaltending. And by the end, when he was in net, in, um, it took me a while to get over the uh, bad time, his bad play in December. But by the end, in February, I was thinking I was I was kind of excited to see him in that again, and he, he, you know, expecting that he would do well, and he did well. Good for you, Mike Smith. And it's a coin flip: who's going to start in the playoffs? Koskinen has slightly better numbers, um, but um, if you're playing a team that re- dumps the puck in a lot, man, you put Mike Smith in that. That's for sure because he will he'll crush that team. Yeah, well, he had a nine fifteen save percentage on the penalty kill. And he and Koskinen were a big part of the reason why that penalty kill did so well. I mean, for all that, that you know, you look at the unit in front of him, but the fact is that of uh, regular NHL goalies uh, that play 25-plus games, which is uh, the usual qualifying line. Mind you, of course, it's, some of them did, were probably close and didn't quite get there, but there was, I think, 52 goalies that played 25 games. Six of them had a save percentage above 900 on the penalty kill, and two of them played for the Oilers. So that's a big part of the reason the PK was as strong as it was. All right, Bruce, what is your move that you didn't like? Oh, that's going to win me lots of friends. Uh, the Zach Cassian contract extension... Uh, what I didn't like about it was the timing of it. And in retrospect, uh, I'm starting to think maybe there's a reason I didn't like that uh, because it was a bit premature. Um, Cassian had played, he had a super calendar 2019. He was promoted by Ken Hitchcock onto the first line in uh, January of 2019. And for all 12 months, right through the end of December, he played well on that line, uh, mind you, with McDavid and typically Andrew Eisaitl, Uh, But he scored. He scored 26 goals, 24 assists in that time. Uh, uh, 50 points, obviously. Uh, almost all of it at even strength. And he did other things um, that one of fans, of course, he, he was the, uh, uh, the big hitter. And, and uh, on games when he was skating well, he looked like, well, $3 million. Uh, but he started 2020 and it kind of, kind of was in a slump. And then he got into that silly game in Calgary where uh, Matt Kachuk ran him three times. 
and he lost his cool in the middle of them and laid a beating on Kachuk that uh, probably felt good to have people watching. In fact, I know it did. <laughs> and yet probably, at the same... No probably. Bruce, there's no probabilities <laughs> about this, okay? That's... And yet at the same time, that was a costly penalty in which Calgary scored the game-winning goal on the power play in a one-goal regulation Calgary win in the game for first place. And Cassian got suspended. And this weird thing happened that while he was suspended, uh, there grew this huge groundswell of love for Cassian in Edmonton. And it was like it it just became this 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 um, tide and Colin got caught in and thought, Oh, now's the time. We gotta we gotta strike while the iron's hot, get this guy under control. And they so they wound up giving a four year extension, three point two million dollars. And it's a lot of money unless the guy's a first liner. And I mean, he's been a first liner in in Edmonton for exactly one year, 2019, out of all the time that he's been here. Otherwise, he spent a lot of time, you know, on Mark Letestu's line. And, uh, uh, you know, he does have value. Don't get me wrong. I just think that the price point was high and the uh, time period was long and, Unfortunately, the fullness of time. This is the kind of player that would have the, the value would have gone down on him on the free agent market this summer. Just the way things have transpired. And obviously, there was no way to foresee that. But yeah, I, I'm just saying, waiting and and taking a little closer to the end probably was the move. And anyway. Yeah, well, everyone's going to get a lot less it's money. It's just an abdicator deal, but it's only for four years instead of seven. So there's that. All yeah, the, I oh. think he's a better. Like, I, I don't know enough about Justin Abdelkader to comment. He had that. a great year playing with uh, Datsuk and Zetterberg, and he got paid, which is not too different from having a great year playing with McDavid and Dreisaitl from where I sit. But. Wish it had been three years. Three years mm-hmm. of the same money would have been fine. Uh, four years is a year too long, probably. Uh, you know, he he's obviously a player who needs some management, right? He's an mm-hmm. up-and-down player. He played really well, Bruce, this year. His his uh, scoring chances plus-minus that we track was was really strong. Especially in the first he, he, half, yeah. Especially in the first half, but he kept, he wasn't a, he never became a sieve on defense. He he was always a useful player um, when he got back in there. And he was, I think his game was starting to round into shape again. And uh, in the playoffs, I'm, I think we're going to be really glad in years to come with, with Zach Cassian in the playoffs, Bruce. So uh, we'll see about that contract. I'm a little less. He's 29 there, right? That's the thing. Yeah, like that's that's year, the thing, eh, right? Like, and... didn't I just get off saying you should never sign that kind of player when they, yeah. like, this is the contract you're going to regret? <laughs> you're probably right. <laughs> so, I mean, I, that, and, and that being said, the fact that I'm pulling that one out of my rear end is the thing that I didn't like says that there's not a big long list of things I hate that Ken Holland did, right? He didn't trade for Brandon Manning. He didn't trade away Ryan Strom, you know, he didn't do all those things. Uh, uh, so, I mean, that's a sign of success when your bad move is still defensible, at least to, to degree. Well, that, here's, you know, yeah, here's mine. Not was... He didn't give, he didn't give him 6 million for seven years, right? So. And mine isn't exactly trading for Griffin Reinhardt here. It's, <laughs> which I always feel justified in bringing up because I never liked that trade. Well, okay. <laughs> I bring it up every chance I get. All right. 
okay, here's here's the move I didn't like. I didn't like the Mike Green trade. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't like the idea of. Uh, I just think you, you got Caleb Jones, you got uh, Matt Benning, you got Russell, you got set. You're seven deep on defense. Where does Green fit in? Like he, Bruce, he. I think I think I did the numbers. Like he was he, uh, in terms of power play numbers the last couple of years for an NHL defenseman. He's one of he's one of the weakest power play defensemen in the NHL. He, he he does not look to me. I think this was a trade of a GM remembering a player being attached to a player. If it's just the depth move, I'm cool with that. If it's just like in case so and so gets hurt and then then another guy gets hurt and then another guy gets hurt and you need someone. But if they're going to play Mike Green ahead of any of those other three guys, Benning, Green, uh, Benning, Jones, or Russell, I am not in favor of that at all. To me, and and what I saw in the brief time he played with the Oilers was a guy who was a step behind. And I'll tell you what, I listened to the Wings in Motion podcast recently wow. about, and I wrote a post about Andreas Athanasiu right. based on that. And they were they were really pretty bullish on Athanasiu and mm-hmm. not liking to see him go. And it reminded me of one of those trades like the Oilers always used to make where there'd be like some 26, 27-year-old guy who was pretty damn good. and But kind of had, things had gone sour a bit, but they trade him. And, you, mm-hmm. and they, we, we regretted it almost every time. It's like the Cogliano trade or the, you know, the Glenn Cross, losing Glenn Cross, that kind of thing, where that's how Detroit fans felt about Athanasio. But with Mike Green... The, the the quote was from one of the one of the blog one of the bloggers was um, on this podcast was for those of for those of us who have seen Mike Green play hockey this year and last I don't think he's worth a fourth round pick and uh, it, that's the only comment they, that they didn't they didn't dwell on the trade but man these these Bruce and and it was three guys on this podcast very a variety of opinions they watched him play. Mm-hmm. They've watched him play every day for a few years now, right? They know right. Mike Green like we do not know him. They saw him play, and they did not see a player of any value, any real value. So again, if this is a depth move, right. I'm completely okay with that. But if there is a playoffs, and I see Mike Green starting ahead of Caleb Jones, for instance, mm-hmm. or Matt Benning, or Chris Russell, I'm just going to, like, what is going on? And I didn't like that move for that reason. So maybe that's more on Tippett than on Holland, but I don't know. It starts ahead of Chris Russell. Maybe the orders are going to move the puck better in that game. No, I, I don't think much. Yeah. Honestly, okay. I think anyway. Green is in the, I don't know, like the Ryan Whitney in 2012-13 stage of his career. Like. The nautical twilight phase. <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, yeah, he, he, I mean, he's expensive is the other thing. But, I mean, Holland did two things there to limit the damage on the payroll, which he didn't have much to, to work with. He did, he did get Detroit to retain the full 50%, mm-hmm. and he also got Detroit to take the Kyle Brodziak contract in return, yes. which Brodziak yeah. was on LTIR, and that was $1.15 million. So, basically, between those two things, I cut Green's effective rate from being like 53 uh, almost $5.4 million, down to about 1.5. So basically, they, you know, they got, they got him from the old Andre Secura contract to the new Andre Secura contract just by those machinations. So Holland at least, you know, cut the cut the costs that way. But the fourth round pick is gone, and uh, unfortunately, the player didn't even finish his second game before he got racked up on a neon yeah. knee hit. 
that was yeah. Uh, it it uh, sure. it just I just had a flashback to when when Glenn Sather in Al Hamilton's last year when he was playing I think effectively with one eye if I'm not mistaken. Yep. He would often play Hamilton ahead of Risto Silton, and, mm-hmm. and it would drive me. It drove me crazy, and and I started to develop a dislike for Hamilton, which wasn't fair, right? Because he mm-hmm. was an old warrior on the orders, but wasn't his fault. <clears throat> Well, and playing green ahead of these other guys wouldn't be green's fault, but I hope I don't see that either. Okay, Bruce, what's your number? Uh, I'm going to go with the number 12 because uh, it splits nicely into three. If you look at the roster, uh, the roster report from game 82 of last year, which is the last game Edmonton played before Ken Holland took over, there's 20 players who played in that game, the 3-1 win over Calgary where McDavid got racked up. That's what everybody remember about that game. And four guys that were injured and unable to play. And out of those 24 players, uh, 12 are on the current Oilers. And 12 are not. And uh, conversely, on the current Oilers, the team that played game 71 this year uh, against Winnipeg, they also had, of course, 20 guys dressed for that game. And they, they had four guys on the shelf as well. So they had... The 12 holdovers plus 12 new guys. So basically, Holland cleaned out half of the team and replaced it. So, he, you know, he, he said the day they took over the team that he was going to find some of his solutions internal and some external. And, man, he seems to have kept to that word both uh, on the ice and in, uh, you know, various departments of suits in the, in the team. So he, he basically changed out. Now, of the 12, of course, some of them remain in the organization and the miners and some of them were in the organization and came up from the miners. So it's not like he brought in 12 completely new players, but from the perspective of the Edmonton Oilers team, basically <clears throat> half of it is, has been refreshed in uh, 10, 11 months. This is a good team, Bruce. And with good goaltending, it's a really good team. It is a really good team. If they could get good goaltending and it's a really good team, uh, <coughs> Because they, he just answered so many questions about it this year, and especially bringing in these young guys. So, okay, my number is nine twenty. Nine twenty. You okay? You got the mute button on. Good work. I did. I thought. Yeah, you did. Good. That works. I used it. Yeah. Well, when you choke on your whiskey. Macintosh, <laughs> man. I got a little bit too much in that in that little gulp. <laughs> My number is 920. That's Mike Smith's save percentage for 15 games in um, January and uh, February. Now, of course, when you do, these numbers are always misleading because you kind of cherry pick it. Like you you go to his last bad game and you start it, you end it before his most recent bad game. So there's three games at the end of there where, where he was not so good. He had a, in his last three games, Smith's save percentage was 900, 810, and 875. And the game, and then the games before that, his save percentage. Well, just the five games before: eight sixty four, seven sixty nine, eight forty, eight fifty seven, and eight eighty five. So, but nonetheless, fifteen games, fifteen games. It's like it's a lot of games. Nine twenty save percentage, Bruce. So uh, that's when I my heart warmed up towards Mike Smith. That was a heck of a run. He had eleven wins and four losses. That was so crucial for the Oilers' season that he step it up and he did 
He did. Yeah, so good for you. The good season turned Smith. in early January, and he was one of the movers and shakers that helped, uh, helped to key that yeah. change. I mean, Yamamoto, Yamamoto obviously, yeah. was, a, was a big part of it. And uh, um, so, I mean, if, if I were to look at what, how Holland <laughs> dealt with the young players, uh, where he, you know, he basically brought him in sort of slowly. He brought in, uh, well, Bear obviously started the season. Jones came up mid-November. Yamamoto came up in late December. Each of those guys wound up making an impact on the team. Benson came up a little bit later than that and got a look, but he wasn't quite ready yet. But uh, uh, there was, it, there seemed to be some sort of systematic uh, introduction. And... Uh, I think uh, maybe this is a move that maybe I should have mentioned earlier, but uh, after the holiday roster freeze, the season was exactly half over, and that was the time when uh, uh, Holland made his move and he waived uh, Brandon Manning and he waived Marcus Granlund and he brought up two young guys, Kyle Yamamoto and William Lagason, and sorry. It was like it was a plan. Half the season in the minors, and then we're gonna we're gonna see where we're at and change things up. And and Lagason didn't make a big difference. Uh, I don't think getting rid of Manning hurt them any. And uh, the Yamamoto shot in the arm was just a huge thing. I mean, he doesn't get credit for the player, but I think he should get credit for his handling of the player. Bruce, did you just sneak in another good thing? I there? did. Okay, good good work. All right, <laughs> let's leave it there, Bruce. <laughs> thanks for talking tonight. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. <laughs>